We are so glad that you joined us today. We know that God wants to do something great in you and through you, and we want to hear about it. So if you can take a moment and share with us your story in the City Chapel app in Amen Corner. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoy today's message. Have your Bible or your iPhone or iPad or if you're slightly unspiritual, your Android. The Android and iPhone people, that's like Baptists and Pentecostals. They're both going to heaven, but they're just watching one another. Like, you? <laughs> Maybe you're still so old school that you have an ancient Jewish scroll. Well, unroll it, baby. Mark chapter 11. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus on a bad day. Anybody here ever had a bad day? I'm not talking about when things go wrong and, you know, it's not. Let's put it. Any, does anyone here know someone who has ever woken up on the wrong side of the bed? Some husbands are afraid to raise their hand right now. But it's, it's true. We all have those. Uh, does anybody get grouchy when they're hungry. Okay, I'm going to preach on honesty for sermon number one, and then sermon number two, I'll talk about these things. So I'll ask it again, and you get one chance to... Anybody ever get grouchy when they're hungry? Point at them. No, you don't have to. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. Um, uh, what about you get uh, grouchy if you get woken up from a nap? Sometimes we like to sanitize the scriptures and we like to scrub them clean of all human emotions, fallibilities, mistakes. And people like to say, oh, I want to be like him because he was a man after God's own heart. Well, yeah, but I have to tell you if I had behaved like David, I would have got to go see God a lot earlier because my wife would have killed me. Come on, guys. Or ladies. I may be dancing close to where you've got your toes, but it's okay. It's in the Bible. And one of the things that I really, really appreciate is the Bible doesn't just sort of whitewash people's lives and show you only the good things because then it would make me feel like I can never ever live up to that. Like even the man who it said, a man after God's own heart, he, he did some really terrible things. I, as in utilized his, okay, what is the term, the modern term, the modern term? Um, when a person in authority you, uh, when a person in authority utilizes their position to effect sexual uh, sexual harassment, yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking for. That's what David was guilty of. You know why? Because his palace was higher than everybody else's, and the rooftops were normally a place of um, privacy. And one of his neighbors happened to be a beautiful woman 
who took her daily bath and her husband was in the army and David's army and one of his like great soldiers and David took advantage of his position. Oh, I understand advantage of his kingly position. Yes, that's true. But he also took advantage of his vertical position. His palace was higher. He could see down and see the weaknesses in people's lives. And he took advantage of that. Uh, well, and that's bad. Yeah, he had an affair with her. He did. Um, to cover it up, he had her husband murdered. Now, if I were God, I would have left that out. Because that doesn't sound real Christian, does it? Until you understand that real Christians make real mistakes. Uh, am I speaking to any real Christians today? That you've ever needed to be forgiven of some real mistakes? Some really big ones? Some that are not as public as David's, but God has forgiven you nonetheless. And God's, God saw no problem in saying, I like his heart. I don't like what he did. But when he's a good boy, he has a good heart. He made some bad decisions. He actually had to live with the consequences of those decisions. But God redeemed all of the bad decisions. And it turned out that the woman whom he had the affair with became his wife. And they eventually had a son that lived named Solomon. And the wisest man that we ever know was born out of a difficult circumstance. I wonder if that's why God graced him with wisdom. To carry the stigma of who he was for the rest of his life and deal with it in a, in, in, in a humane way. Anyway, God doesn't whitewash. But then it came to the New Testament and I felt like that... You know, if you're going to sanitize the scriptures, you for sure are going to do it when it comes to Jesus. I mean, you don't so show Jesus' bad side. Until I began to reread the Gospels with a fresh set of eyes, and I began to, for years I've studied the New Testament and basically looked at the Bible in the New Testament. I've studied to discern the divinity of Jesus. And one day the Holy Spirit said, you're missing a whole part of who Jesus was. You need to spend some time studying the humanity of Jesus. So I began sort of rereading, and anytime it talked about something that seemed very human, one of those places was uh, when Jesus calmed the storm. I mean, we... We like to hear that because it speaks uh, in depth to us. It says to us that when we have storms and we're trying to traverse the sea of life, that, that God will calm the storm. Yeah, it, that says that. But think about it from the human perspective of Jesus. How weary do you have to be? How tired, how sleepy do you have to be to be able to sleep while the winds and the waves tossed the boat so bad that veteran fishermen who are on board think we're going down. To put it in a modern perspective, if, 
if you were a passenger on an airplane, how many of you have ever been on an airplane when there was turbulence? I'm not talking about a bump here and there. My wife and I were on a flight one time where the food trays we were eating off flew up and hit the ceiling. People got saved. <laughs> Trying to remember if Harry and I were ever on any of those. He, he probably does. I've been on them, so I kind of sleep through it or ignore it or laugh. Or, But imagine how bad it would be if the pilot himself said, as in the veteran fisherman saying, we're going down. What if, the, what if the turbulence was so bad the pilot said, we're going down, ladies and gentlemen. We're, we're, we're going down. Uh, could you sleep? No, that, that's not the right... How tired would you have had to have been to sleep through just such turbulence? Yet Jesus' humanity, does God get sleepy? No. But his humanity was exhausted by his, his schedule, by, by all of his ministry, by the constant pull of people on him. He, he was exhausted. He was so tired and so happy just to be with his family, which are the disciples, which he can put down his guard and he can sleep. He's sleeping. And they come wake him up. And maybe they, they understood he don't like to get woke up. But all I know is they said, we're going down. And Jesus wiped the sleep out of his eye as a human. And angrily stepped to the bow of that boat as God. And yelled, you see, that's really what he did. Because if you're going to hear anything over the wind and the wave that's that loud, you're going to have to yell. And he said, stop it. It's like, how many of you moms and dads have ever had to say, if you don't behave, or something like, don't make me have to pull this car over. I mean, that's, that's the, Jesus yelled at the winds and the waves, and they lay like whipped puppies at his feet. Can I add a little bit of Tommy in there? And he said, and don't disturb my nap next time. If I'm sleeping, you win, you storm, stop it. Let me sleep. Yes, yes, okay, master. Okay, are you getting a little bit of a picture that Jesus could get? My mom had a fancy word for it when she was mad. She would say, I'm about to get perturbed. I'll never forget the day that I smarted off to her and said, what does that mean? I learned. <laughs> I never forgot what perturbed meant. It meant, don't mess with mom. Not right now. Not today. Mom's on a tear. Mom's having a bad day, which brings me back to Jesus on a bad day. And the, the passage in Mark 11, the see. Some people preach a little differently than me. They read a scripture in the beginning and they preach from it. I like to sort of preach to it, read it so you understand it and illuminate it to you. And don't, I don't want you to think that my uh, 15 to 17 minute introduction here 
plays itself into, I'm going to be preaching for two hours. No, I'm about halfway done. Because we're, we've arrived at a point where I think you can understand Jesus on a bad day lifted from the scriptures because in Mark chapter 11, he's on a tear. This is not the day to get in Jesus' way. I'll show it to you. He has arrived at Jerusalem. He's there for the feast days. The day before Mark chapter 11, I guess I need to give you guys the actual verse. I just thought it's, it's verse 14, okay? Mark 11, 14. The day before this incident is, takes place is the same, the day before is his triumphant entry. So if you read this chronologically, you'll find that Jesus actually in this passage, he went into Jerusalem three different times. He went on the first day, that was his triumphant entry. He went on the second day, which is the day that we're talking about. And then he went back the next day to check on things. So he goes back in, he goes back and forth to Jerusalem. Now, is he, why is he not staying in Jerusalem? Because it stinks. Um, literally. Imagine a city of some, maybe it could have been 100,000 people with no indoor plumbing. You can't even imagine that. Uh, no running water. That means that um, when people, how can I, this, this is a very dignified church, I can tell. So I got to be careful. When people need to, at night, when people need to go to the bathroom at night, they would use what was called a chamber pot, which by the next morning, you needed to get that out of the house. The way, the commonly accepted way is you threw it out the window into the street. So that's the city of Jerusalem and the vehicles of conveyance were not buses, cars, trucks. It was donkeys and mules and camels and the form of pollution from those vehicles does not drift up in puffs of smoke like belching diesels it it falls down okay come on folks help me here i don't want to have to say some of these words but you're going to make me see i turned 60 last year that means i can say what i want to it scares my wife half to death but that that's the city of jerusalem Jesus is staying, and we, we read it in verse 14. It says he leaves Bethany. He's staying in Bethany. Bethany is the high rent district. It is just far enough outside of Jerusalem to smell good. And just close enough to Jerusalem to be within the legal parameters of a Sabbath day's journey. Oh, I forgot. The Jews live by this incredibly detailed legalistic codes uh, even to this day orthodox jews uh orthodox jews i, I go stay in, at the king david hotel in jerusalem it's a very nice nice hotel and when they have a sabbath day the the jews the orthodox jews have strange beliefs they believe that uh, anytime you push a button 
It is working. You can, and on the Sabbath, you cannot work. Therefore, you would normally be trapped on the upper floors of a hotel, except that the hotel has Sabbath day elevators. That on the Sabbath day, they flip a switch and the elevator stops at every floor. And you get to get on. And so if you're a Gentile and you get on the Sabbath day elevator, that means you have to stop every floor all the way down. Oh, and flipping a switch is work. So that means if you're an Orthodox Jew, you can't turn off the lights in your room. Or for that matter, you can't turn them on. So you call the front desk. And they turn on. They have an ability. They've wired the hotel where they can turn on or turn off the lights in your room. Now, you please tell me what the difference between picking up a phone or flipping a switch is. <laughs> That's what legalism will do for you. It gets you into intractable situations. Well, the Jews had a legalistic code that the code was on the Sabbath day, and we're doing this in modern time, but you could, you could only walk about 30 minutes. That would be your Sunday afternoon stroll. But if you walked 31 minutes, you're a sinner. Your walk just turned into work. And now you, you... So Bethany was situated exactly 30 minutes away from the temple. And that put it as far away as possible to have fresh air, but as close as necessary to be able to go to the temple. And Jesus is staying at Bethany, and the Bible said that he often stayed at the home of Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. That's where he's staying. I mean, if, if you got raised from the dead, I think you would make a special room for Jesus to stay in. And he loves staying there for reasons I've already mentioned to you. It's, it's an incredible place. The day before he leaves Bethany, he, Bethany is on the Mount of Olives. You see, there's two, two don't, when I say mountains, don't think Colorado. Don't think the Alps. Don't think the Appalachians. Uh, Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives is like an overgrown hill. It's a couple hundred feet high. The, uh, Mount Zion is actually slightly lower than the Mount of Olives. And between them is a little dip called the Kidron Valley. And there's a brook that flows there. And he, Jesus stayed at Bethany, which is kind of just around the backside. You cannot see Jerusalem from Bethany. He walks around the corner. He sees Jerusalem. He begins to weep over it. He calls for a donkey. You know the story. And he rides in on the, the colt. And he, he enters Jerusalem, and that's the day that they realize his ministry has just really reached its peak. And all of the Jews think this is the, the, the populace of the Jews. They think this is the man that's come to help us throw off the yoke of Roman bondage. And they're waving palm leaves that they broke off the church rubbery out in front of the temple, which probably is what made the Pharisees mad. They're throwing garments down in the street as a way of honoring it like our garments are only good enough for his dirty feet. It's an amazing scene. He walks in and the Bible says in uh, verse 11 of chapter Mark of 11, it says he, 
He entered Jerusalem. This is after the triumphant entry. He went into the temple courts. If you can put Mark 11, 11 up there. And you can just leave that up there and keep scrolling through them as we go. It says that he looked around at everything. Well, you got to look really good to see that. Uh, he looked around at everything. How many of you have ever gone window shopping? How many of you men wish your wife would only go window shopping? <laughs> he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, the Bible says, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The next day, everybody say the next day. The bad day. The day that Jesus woke up on the wrong side of the bed. The day that shows a little bit of his humanity. And the next day, when he would come from Bethany, he was hungry. Okay, if he gets grouchy when he's sleepy, what happens when he gets hungry? He saw a fig tree. A fig tree is different than all other trees in that a fig tree produces its fruit and as soon as the fruit is ripe, the leaves start falling off the tree. And when the fruit is past ripeness, the tree will have no leaves, which is usually about June. I have a fig tree. When I left the house yesterday, I said to my wife, look, the figs are on there. Which means we have this, what would you call that thing? We got a big, huge model of an owl because lately, the past couple of years, the birds have been stealing my figs. And I got upset. You can't chase those birds away. I'll put this big owl up there, it's supposed to scare them away. But I'll put it up too early last year. They just made friends with it and sat down right next to it. So I got to wait until the figs are just right and put it up there, scare them all, let them get ripe. I'll get some figs. Jesus saw the fig tree and the way the fig tree thing works is there's leaves on there. And he said, I'm supposed to have some, some fruit and et cetera, et cetera. He checks it. There's no fruit. Put it in perspective. Have you ever gone through the McDonald's drive through and only to discover two blocks away that they gave you a fish sandwich instead of a Big Mac. Jesus, they said, he's upset. And I read to you. Uh, let's see what, I don't know what, verse, what, what version you're in. Jesus said, I think that's uh, BNIV. He said, let no one ever eat fruit from you again. That's very diplomatic language. King James language is much more... Uh, poetically powerful. It says Jesus cursed the fig tree. I don't know how people curse in Austin. I'm not really sure. I, I've, I've been here, but I can't, I can't say that I've been around somebody just going full tilt. Uh, but I, I grew up in Louisiana. We have, we're Cajuns. And I know how Cajuns cuss. I, I don't think Jesus did this King James version kind of thing. 
I curse thee, O thou fig tree, from the top of thy leaf to the bottom of thy root. Do you think that's what Jesus did? Come on, how do people in Austin curse? Talk to me. Was it good? I mean, I, I, I didn't say anything. But, but you, you get the picture, right? I don't, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think the Jews went, I don't think they played around when they cursed. I don't, this is where I, I, I we kind of want to sanitize and whitewash and say, oh no, Jesus, he's so spiritual. He floats around on a little cloud. No. He's ticked off. This is this is, makes him mad. And in fact, I'll show you how far in advance he was mad. He was building up steam from the day before. Uh, he cursed the fig tree. The next day, when the disciples passed by, because they were they went back again the next day, it was dried up from the root. Withered, dead. Can you see Peter and James talking to one another? Hey, dude. Next time he says he's hungry, it's serious. Right? It, it, they, they're, they are. It's, it's. This is this, the picture of Jesus is all, trying to be careful because I don't want to totally destroy you. Jesus is on a rampage. This is not the day to cross him. I don't know if he startled his disciples when, for lack of a better analogy, he turned the air blue. I, I don't know. Can, can you see the disciples when he starts? Backing up like, oh, come on. Get away. And I don't think this is the first time they saw him like that. Why else would they have told the children? Back up. Back up now. You don't know him like we know him. You should have seen him last Sunday. He had a whip. I, I think they understood that he was. Can I tell you something? I'm going to be really bold with you right now. I am tired of a Christianity that emasculates manhood. I'm going to say it again because you didn't. I'll tell it over here, okay? I'm tired of a Christianity that emasculates manhood. I believe Jesus was a man's man. I, I, I know he had calluses on his hands. He was a carpenter. He testosterone flowed through his veins just as much as the spirit of God was in him. He felt the same things that men feel. He felt the same things that we humans feel. It's not that he never got angry. It's just that he always got angry about the right things. 
And there's, there's where the problem lies is that sometimes we get angry about the wrong things. And then it messes everything up. But Jesus somehow had this ability to separate out what was important and what was immaterial. And he focused on the big things. And evidently on this day, the fig tree. <laughs> if you don't believe Jesus, that hunger was not an issue with Jesus, ask that fig tree who felt that wrath of Jesus on a day when he was, I know how to say it, full of passion. Everybody say passion. We've, uh, I, uh, thank you, Mel Gibson, for rehabilitating the word passion, dusting it off, reintroducing it back into our world and saying, yes, this is good, this is we call it now, we understand it's been called historically the, the passion of Christ. We, we understand that. But for the most part, when we use the word passion, we think of sensuality. But there's another arena where passion is readily seen, and that's in athletics. A coach will tell you the difference between a good athlete and a championship athlete is often not their innate ability, it's which one has the most passion. Because two with the same ability, but one with the more passion will rise to the surface. The other arena of athletics where passion comes into play is the crazy spectators. You ever seen those guys that are, on, when, when, the, when the college, when, when, uh, the, what, what is it? Um, horns, a bit, yeah. But I mean, what do they call them? Not the, not the horns. Longhorns, that's it. When the longhorns are playing in, I don't know, University of Michigan or somewhere up north, and you've seen those crazy guys, the ones who take their shirt off when it's snowing outside, right? Paint their bodies half one color, half the other color. And the TV camera always seems to find them and say, oh, look at this. This is what passion looks like. These are true fans. But that same secularized media wants to emasculate passion from the church, wants to remove passion from the church. Wants to say, you can't get upset about things and you can't get excited about things. When passion is absence from church, presence is out the door. But when passion comes to church, presence comes back down the aisle. That's why we say, I refuse to let the others tell me that I cannot be passionate about Christ. And about what he's done. And about Christianity in my life. I'm tired of a passionless Christianity. It's time for some passion. Yeah. Amen? Amen? Come on, tell somebody next to you. How passionate are you? How passionate? Right now, or pretty close to right now, there's, I don't know, half a million screaming people in Indianapolis. 
waiting for somebody to drive it 200 miles an hour for 500 miles and at the end drink milk and they're going to go crazy and yet they want to tell us we cannot go crazy about a Christ who turned our life around who mended our families who cleaned us up and who is depositing us inside heaven I refuse to be told I can't be passionate when they say it's okay for passion to be in those arenas. Come on, clap your hands to the Lord right now. A little bit of passion. It's okay. Would you call Jesus passionate when he goes? Yes, he's like, he's passionate. Now, the next thing says, and this is the ending part. When he reached Jerusalem, he entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. What, what, what would you have thought if when Pastor Harry talked to me and talked to and talked to you and introduced me and I'm his mentor and blah 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 and I walked up here and the first thing is I did I just hauled off and kicked that nice cute little podium and sent it flying I'm thinking about doing it right now could you tell only it's got my iPad on it so but my wife is saying, please don't. Okay. <laughs> well, what would you think? You'd, say, you'd be paying attention. What's he going to kick next? This should be a good show. Okay, so do you really think these guys, what they were doing is people came to worship. But because, and they wanted to bring an offering. Offerings were specified in the codes of the Jews. It had to be a bullock for this, a dove for that, a lamb for this. And it had, they had, people can't come for hundreds of miles, dragging a little billy goat. What they would do is get to Jerusalem and go buy one at the market. Well, some of those guys set up the market in the temple and they were gouging the customers charging a high price and paying kickbacks to the priest. <laughs> what does that smell like? Corruption to me. And Jesus had seen this on the day before and he knew what was going on. And another gospel writer, John, see the John tells the same story. He's got little different things. Like if you go watch a movie with your wife. And I, I went to watch a movie with my wife one time. Came back to tell my daughters about it. And they said, was it good? And I said, oh yeah, you should have seen it when that guy in that yellow Ferrari was chasing, chasing the, the, the red Corvette through the streets. Uh, amazing. Jumping over this. It was cool. And my wife said, yeah. And the lady in there with him had on this amazing dress and the, her hair. I don't remember that dress. Do you know that two people can see the same event and, and, and have a little different? 
Mark gives us this rendition. John says something else that's really interesting. John says that that night before, or he says before Jesus got to the temple, which since he left there late, I believe it happened at night while he was at Bethany. He said before he got to the temple, he braided, another translation says he plaited a whip. You got it? That means that night before while Martha's cooking and Mary's sitting there saying, ooh, kumbaya. Not really. But there's this kind of thing going on at Mary and Martha's house. Jesus just picks up some, maybe he goes out to the stable and grabs a couple of three cords and he starts weaving them together. Making things with his hand. I like that. That's a man. I, I do stuff like that. Now, something's happened to me since I got no, I got, I have to do stuff with my hands. I go crazy. I, I do. I like knives. I plait. I, I, I make lanyards for knives. Why? Because I like them. I cut them off and make another one. I just something, when I'm sitting in hotel rooms, I got to do something. Jesus can you see that it's after supper? They're all sitting around, and, and you know, sipping coffee or whatever. Jesus starts making a whip, making a whip, making a whip. He didn't just randomly take his belt off. He didn't just, you know, when he got to the temple that day, he didn't just suddenly lose it. He, he, he lost it the day before. But he kept it bottled up and he said, I'm coming back armed for this fight. Do you know that the difference between manslaughter and murder is premeditation? That means that Jesus is premeditating what he's doing. The disciples are asking him, what you doing there? Never mind. Another one said, you ask him, what is that? I've never seen him. It looks like he's making a whip. Yeah, I know, but who's he going to whip? <laughs> you, dude. You're the one that didn't want to do stuff last time. No, what is he doing? You have Jesus. That's an interesting thing you're making there. What's up? You'll see. He makes the whip. Never, I, I don't see any revelation to them about what's going on. I, they, but I can tell you this much. When he was walking into Jerusalem, that 30-minute walk that next day, guess what he had had in his pocket? Uh, by the way, I had something in my pocket. I know I'm not supposed to pull out knives at church, but this is a nice one. It's pretty. Look at it. People say, wait, why are you doing preaching with a knife? My, there was a day when everybody carried a pocket knife. I can't now very much because I fly through TSA, TSA stuff there, which stands for thousands standing around. Um, <laughs> but when I drive, I, I carry a pocket. You never open boxes of books and do stuff. It's just, it's nice. It's cool. He had something in his pocket. He had medicine in his pocket. 
for the disrespect that they were showing to the temple. And he's walking in, but the closer he gets, the angrier he gets, and he just happens to run into a fruitless fig tree. On that, uh, you get it, Jesus on a bad day. You just, fig tree, you just shouldn't have gotten his way today because he is perturbed. He's, a, he's ticked off. Don't everything but Can you imagine the disciples? They're walking lightly after they hear him pop off at the fig tree. They don't know what's in his pocket. When he walks in the temple, do you think Jesus said, now you guys over there, if you don't get, take your stuff and go, I'm going to get mad. Hmm? Would they have left? Can you run a shopkeeper off of his shop? root him up from his place of corruption? Can you do that by just walking in and said, you need to go? I don't think so. I think when Jesus got in there, his veins were bulging. When first, the first thing he did when he walked, get out! And I said, who said that? I said it! Get out of this place! Uh, who are you? I'll show you who I am. He pulls out that whip and he starts kicking. No, I'm not going to do he, he starts kicking and he starts beating and he starts screaming. His spit is flying. He may have cursed. I wouldn't put it past him. He's already shown us on that day that he was capable of it, right? Whatever, all I know is I don't think that they easily were uprooted from their place of corruption. I think that it took that passion, it took all of that to get them out of there. And he said, my father said, this house shall be called a house of prayer. Remember I said that Jesus got angry about the right things. You turned it into a den of thieves. Which tells you why the next week they were plotting to kill him. He revealed the corruption at the heart of the priesthood. And the cartel that controlled the temple. Oh yeah. Just like cartels control drugs. They were controlling the temple trade. And Jesus said, I'm kicking you out. I don't know but what you're not going to come back. But I'm telling you for right now, there is going to be no more of this in the temple. This is going to be a place of prayer. Why would Jesus show us his bad side? Why would Jesus show us? I mean, this, is, this may not be the stuff you ever heard anybody preach about. But it's in there. And why would he say and do and display for us those things? What about the end result is so big and so important? I'll tell you what. Jesus is a crusader. And he is on a mission to make it easy 
for people to access God's presence. And when things stand in the way, dare I say it, when religion stands in the way of spirituality, he'll kick out the stained glass. He will kick over the little uh, the little pulpit thing, the cute ones. He will do all kind of crazy stuff because he is determined that church be a place of worship. And anything that gets in your way, oh yeah, the, 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 the heart of it's all about you. Anybody. Anything that gets in your way of accessing God, he says, I'm done with it. I'm finished with it. I'll show you my bad side, but you're going to stop it because people are going to have access to me. And so God was willing to show us his bad side so that you could have the good side. So that you could have the unfettered access. So that you, this is, I'll never forget. Uh, we had a boy in our neighborhood growing up uh, who was, he was bad. I wasn't good, but he was bad. And he was so bad that we got tired of him playing with us. He'd break things, tear things up. Do, and we told him one day, just four or five of us other little kids, oh, we were seven, like, no, could have been six. You can't play with us anymore. I don't know what he went home and told his dad. But the next thing, we had a little hideout, a fort, a little trees and woods by the house. We had a little four. The next thing I saw him coming back and behind him his dad was bringing a baseball bat. And we told, talked among us among the friends and we decided we would abandon the fort for the moment. <laughs> we didn't know what the dad was coming to do with the baseball bat but all we said is, well, I don't know but we're, we're out of here. And he came and tore up our little fort. I told my mom about it and she said, well, just because he's, he's being rude and mean, that don't mean, that's not, you don't have to be. And I said, will dad get a baseball bat and come with me? I, I have to tell you, it's something I admired about the dad coming and saying, you're not going to treat that. Do you understand that Jesus is saying, you're not going to treat my worshipers like this. He's standing up for you so that you can have the access to God. He said, you're not going to treat my worshipers like this. You, you den of the out of here. And he is passionate about you connecting to him. I'm glad that I serve a God who is willing to get in the fight to make sure you are protected. That he's willing to do whatever it takes so that you can pray a prayer. And not worry about the religious police. That you can come to church and if you don't want to give in the offering, you don't have to. That you can come. God is the enemy of religion, but he is the friend of spirituality. Amen.
And I want to tell you, I am thankful that I feel like I'm in a spiritual church. I'm not sure it's a religious church because I've seen some of you already. And I don't think you'd be going to a religious church. I don't think that Harry and Rowena would be building a religious church. There's plenty of religious churches in Austin. If that's what you're looking for, might want to check somewhere else out. Sorry, Harry. I'm trying to run people off. First send him here. But if you're looking for a place where the spiritual can access the Heavenly Father, we're going to guard that right here. And this is a good place to be. Amen? Hallelujah. Let me pray over you right now. Let me pray. I, I want to pray right now. I'm not sure how, what your protocol is here. I'm not sure how uh, the hair, and, uh, and I know I preach too long, but you know, it's Memorial Day. You, all you're going to do is go eat hot dogs. I don't get to come here very often. They may never ask me back because I almost cussed and I nearly kicked over the pulpit. But I'm here right now. And I want you to know God loves you. He's passionate about you. He'll pick up a baseball bat for you. He will fight for you. And if things start getting in his way, he is passionate about you. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the heart. And I feel, thank you for the engagement of people. I've, I've watched them today as some people have said, yeah, yeah that's me. I, I want a father who will fight for me. I want, I want a heavenly father who, who loves me that much. I, I want that. Thank you that he didn't just stand by and let the religious ride roughshod over the spiritual. He turned that temple back into a place of prayer. And we're turning this high school into a place of prayer right now. Touch people's hearts. Draw them into the kingdom. Help them be attracted to a father who fights for them. God, the enemy has tried to ruin the image of a father and in our generation by so many divorces and, and, and some people don't think it's hard for them to think of a father who's that passionate about them. But maybe somehow today they caught one flicker of a glimpse of how much you love them. Thank you for being our soldier. Thank you for fighting the good fight of the faith. Thank you for fighting it all the way to death's door. And then you came back and kicked that door open. And on this Memorial Day, we remember you. Thank you, Jesus. Everybody said amen. amen. Did the word of God come alive in your heart today? Amen. Did I help you a little bit? If I bring my wife, will you let me come back? 
<laughs> I love you. Pastor Harry said something about you're going to take up an offering. He knows what we do. We're not, he, he of all people knows we don't, we don't squander money. It takes money. I've cut my staff back to nothing so I can spend more time overseas. And I spend about 50, 60% of my time outside of the country. Because here in the U.S., you've got a lot of good preachers like Harry Fleming. But I go some places where my books have gone before me. They're in 40 different languages. Just open some doors. That's what I do. And I'm just as passionate about doing it there as I am here or anywhere. Whether it's large crowds or small crowds, he's been with me in both. And I'm proud of you. I'm proud of this church. Look at me. I am proud to see what God has done. And I'm proud of Pastor Harry and Rowena. How many of you love them? Stand up and give God some praise for him right now. Come on, Dad. I want to. I want. I want to do this. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't know if you believe in the blessing of, of a father. I know they got. They got good fathers, but I can be a father too. So I want to just bless them, Father. I bless the ministry of Harry and Rowena. I bless the work of their hands. I bless the fruit of their, their labor. Open doors that no man could open. Do things, God. Provide supernatural things. I saw you do it last weekend where I was, how you provided an amazing building. Provide a building at the right time, the appropriate time. Do it, God. I've seen you do it before, and you can do it again. And I, I just pronounce the blessing of a father on them. That I, I feel like you as their father is proud. I'm telling them on behalf of you, but I'm also proud. And I'm happy to see what God's doing. In Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. Say this with me. I bless my pastor. I bless, pastor. I bless his family. Now, how many of you are ready to take up the cause? And if somebody talks bad about them, first of all, stop them. And secondly, call me. I got some medicine in my pocket. Amen? And you have to forgive Rowena for her funny accent. She thinks we have accents, but I love hearing her talk. 